Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janus Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janus Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast Stocks, staging a late-day rebound, the Nasdaq actually finishing in the green. Some of the most bruised and battered names, Peloton, Shopify, Etsy, Rivian, and now a firm after hours surging. Did Wall Street out? Did Wall Street get out of the sellers today? Plus, are President Xi's days as the leader of China numbered? Rumors swirling on Chinese social media that the leader, under fire for his harsh COVID-19 lockdown policies, could step down from power. The ripple effects on U.S.-Chinese relations and the global economy straight ahead. And later, retail therapy investors, even in this down market, starting to shop for some shopping stocks. We'll top the tape on a couple of slimmed-down names that are on the rebound. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Side in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Dami. We'll get to the comeback in just a minute, but we do want to start with the breaking news from Fed Chair Powell. He just finished, finished up an interview on NPR Marketplace, making some potentially market-moving comments, saying that uh, a soft landing may depend on factors the Fed does not control, also saying that two 50-basis-point hikes in the next two meetings would be appropriate. Uh, he's also talking about what a soft landing means. A soft landing means hitting 2% inflation with a strong labor market. Does this change the game? Dan Nathan. Uh, I don't think it changes the game. I mean, I think it's funny that we're back to that 2% inflation target. That was that they were dying to get to on the upside. Now they're dying to get to it on the downside. I think Guy would tell you that inflation is going to be both pesky and persistent. Isn't that what he keeps saying there mm-hmm. uh, about inflation? So we might have low single digits up from that like kind of 8% readings that we've had. But I guess it's around here to stay. The idea of threading the needle for a soft landing, nobody really knows. And if you just look at a lot of the action, a lot of different risk markets here, it does feel like the markets are starting to price in a sort of growth scare, like a slowing growth yeah. sort of um, environment. And that's not particularly great. I do think, though, that if you're a trader, whether it be of stocks, of commodities, of currencies, of, of uh, you know rates and stuff, it's a fun time. If you're an investor, it's really confusing right now. Yeah. It, it, on first glance of these comments, you think, oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. But then you realize that this is actually the Fed coming around to what the markets already think. The Fed is coming around to things that we've even been saying here on this show, Guy Adami, in terms of being able to control some of the factors pushing inflation higher, which they do not control, especially when it comes to supply chain and Russia-Ukraine. You're trying to trigger me. That's what you're doing on this Thursday, aren't you? I mean, you're just trying to upset. It's a beautiful day. You're Am trying I successful? To get me upset. It's not going to. You know, you're not. You're not going to su- succeed. I mean, if Chair Powell or any of his uh, cronies watch CNBC's Fast Money each night at 5 p.m. Eastern time, for literally the last year, uh, they could have gotten a lot of their cues from us, oddly enough. So I don't know if you're a fan of Johnny Nash. I think Tim, I'm sure, is. But he's saying, I can see clearly now, uh, apparently that's what's going on with Jerome Powell. Now, I'll say this, and we're going to talk about the market. If the market doesn't react negatively, and I thought the price action today was excellent, that's actually a really good sign. This doesn't mean necessarily that, that the markets won't have a negative reaction, even though he is simply saying whatever what many people on the street were already thinking, Tim. It also doesn't mean that the rain is gone, which I believe is the last line of the of the song that guy started singing. 
um, the rain's not gone. And, and if you actually look at three hikes, uh, we almost have essentially another 50 bips priced in for that third meeting out. And, and I don't think it really matters. Uh, we heard Meister this week, who took down the market a couple of days ago, trying to leave all options on the table. I think the Fed has to be shocked, even though no one is terribly surprised that the momentum today, PPI, like, are we Argentina uh, at 11.5 percent? Uh, it, it's it's crazy to think where we are. And we all know that the services inflation that was shown you know, yesterday in CPI is about 5 percent is very sticky and probably moving higher. Um, where are the markets? Well, look at the bond market again. Look at the flattening uh, of the yield curve that, that we had over the last you know, three to six months. But we've actually steepened a couple basis points. The bond market is telling me on a day like today when we've actually seen the 10 year bond continue to come in and that it actually had a bear steepening, which, folks, quickly just means that you, you had the, the short end start to excuse me, rally a bit um, and, and you got steeper from the short end. So it was actually a bull steepening. Excuse me. And you have a case where the market is telling you they are worried about growth and that ultimately the Fed may not be able to do what they're trying to tell us they're going to do. Again, this is from an NPR interview, and we have a part of the transcript of the interview. And this is sort of interesting, so I'll, I'll read you part of it here. Um, he's, he says, would just say we have a series of expectations about the economy. If things come in better than we expect, we're prepared to do less. If they come in worse than we expect, we're prepared to do more. The interviewer then says, let me be clear, 75 basis points is prepared to do more. Powell says, what you've seen is you've seen this committee adapt to the incoming data and evolving outlook. That sounds like 75 is, in fact, on the table, Karen. Yeah, I think, well, just to follow the theme, I think he can see some obstacles in his way. I think that the, I don't think he intended to put himself in a box that way that we interpreted having done so. And I don't think these comments mean, I mean, it was just like you're saying, everybody else sort of thinks this already, right? We're really upset with him if he's too dovish because he's, you know, inflation's going to get out of control. And now we're we supposed to get upset with him because he sounds a little more hawkish that maybe, you know, we can't, uh, he can't um, successfully navigate a soft landing. I don't think he really knows exactly what's going to happen. I don't think any of us do. So I, I'm inclined to give him a break. And I think, does it really matter if they go 75 now? or they go 50 and then 50 and maybe 50 again. I don't know that, that really matters. What I think matters more is what happens to commodity prices. And we're starting to see some of them crack. So that's going to be more helpful to him than I get. I mean, I think that's the most helpful thing for him. Inflation yeah, this, to come down. Today was such a hot print. This interview is, is fascinating. I'll just go into a little bit more of it. Um, it if you had perfect hindsight, you go back and it would probably would have been better for us. This is Powell speaking. It probably would have been better for us mm. to have raised race a little sooner. OK, let's move on. Um, talk about the markets today. <laughs> Guy, Dami, what did you make of the action? It was a very interesting session. We took a leg lower midday then we managed actually to finish off the lows. Yeah, I thought actually today and, you know, Dan, can, everybody can speak to this, but Dan actually bought things today, believe it or not. But I thought the price action was great. Now, just to, you know, a little refresher course, I thought 37.50 in the S&P got down to 38.58 today, which peaked the trough from the recent all-time high is 19.9%. That number is meaningful because that was the same move lower back in October into December of 2018. And I thought Apple could get to 138. 138.80, the low today at 24% peaked the trough decline from its all-time high, which is pretty much run-of-the-mill what we've seen from Apple over the last five or six years. So 
Price action today was really good. Again, I'm not going to be one of these people that's going to call bottom because it's just disingenuous to do so. But I think today sets us up for at least a 3 to 5% bounce in all these markets. Yeah. Do you remember that Life Cereal commercial um, with Mikey and Mikey finally likes Life Cereal? Like Gilcrest Brothers, the by the way. They grew up in Yonkers. Don't, don't say bullets. It's incrementally less Inc- bearish. Less bearish because okay, that is go. still progress. Well, here's the thing. We, we've been talking about are we there yet? What are the, some of the signs that are going to be, right? And so we're starting to see inflation break-evens kind of peak on a one-year basis. Karen just talked about some of these commodities that are kind of rolling over here. You know, there is a scenario where everything doesn't actually have to come apart. One of the things that I hate when it comes to markets, I hate manias, right? And we had a stock market mania. We have been talking about it for over a year now, maybe close to a year and a half, how each one of these has gone the way of the dodo, okay? And ultimately, the chickens were going to come home to roost in mega cap. And if you look at the price action today, Mel, you said the NASDAQ managed to close up. You know what didn't close up? The QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. You know why? 24% of that is Apple and Microsoft, and they both closed down 2%. So they finally killed everything. There's no one left to sell all the garbage, all the art garbage and all that other stuff. And that's why we had some of the rallies and some of those names. But it is telling that some of the major generals of this market who've led tremendous amount of the outperformance did close down. So I think there's probably some more downside there. The one thing I'll say is why am I nibbling on the QQQ? Well, I do think that when we come out of this bear market, we will have a bull run again. It could go for years. And I think the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, the Amazon, maybe even a Facebook that's been cut in half. Tesla's, I suspect, will be down 70 some percent at its lows and sometime in the not too distant future. Those stocks make up 50 percent of the weight of the QQQ. And then you get dozens of stocks that are down 50, 60, 70 percent that can double or go up 200% from the lows. So that's why that's interesting to me. I just think that ultimately you'll see the NASDAQ 100 down about 40% peak to trough. Today at the lows, it was down about 30%. The S&P was down 20% at its lows. Last point I'm going to make here, S&P, and we've been talking about it. The last thing that analysts and strategists have not capitulated on their 2022 earnings estimates. They're still calling for 10% growth. Let's say cut that in half, put 208 on that, put the 10-year average per fact set of the S&P 500 PE at 17, and you get 3,500, which is very near the pre-pandemic high. You put 18 on it, let's say above that, you get to guys 3,750. Yeah, Um, I want to be clear here. Dan doesn't think that we bottomed. And I know that he he said that in in different ways just now, but he had... the bottom is not here, but you don't know when the bottom is going to be, Karen. And so I think that a lot of people at home have the same question. When do I start legging into a position in the markets, in whatever it may be, whether it be an indice or an individual stock? Do you think that we're closer to that point now? Well, we have to be just mathematically closer to that point. (laughs) Sorry, my dog is barking in the background. So, you know, for me, I'm always long. And so I'm looking to buy things. You know, it depends. If you owned nothing, absolutely I would get started today. I would do some sort of dollar cost averaging and not worry about timing the market. I'm certain that I'm never going to be able to time the market. So if I own nothing, I would start with Google. Uh, You know, it's my favorite stock. It's my biggest position. I think that the risk reward there is very compelling. Um, Same for for Meta. And uh, I probably own some... There's some retail I would probably own. Something that's a hot, anything in the IGV, I probably would not own because even though it's come down a lot, I still think it's overpriced, certainly relative to the metrics that Dan's talking about. And I think um, there's, if you don't know what to own, you could buy some spiders, you could buy some cues uh, like Dan did. I think you're not going to pick the bottom. To think that you're ever going to be able to, it's sort of a fool's errand. Or for that, me, for yeah. me it is. Maybe for somebody both. else can do it. 
Most people. Um, Guy, you know, just to get back to Apple, because uh, it's the biggest stock, I mean, Tim had mentioned the 125 level. 122 is its low, and I'm wondering where you think, you know, it goes. And I was listening to the OT before we came on, and I think somebody from Fundstrat was suggesting, you know, 112 was a possibility. And I, I don't know, but what I thought the October low of 138-ish was in the cards, we've been saying it for a while, it effectively got there today. So I think to Karen's point, I think Tim and Dan would echo this as well, you know, if you haven't been in this name, if you've been waiting patiently for your entry level, this is about as good as it's gotten for quite some time. Not to suggest we can't overshoot because we've seen that to the downside many times, but in terms of an entry point, I think the stock gave you something today in that form of 138.80 low. All right, we have a news alert now on Robinhood. Shares are soaring after a company majority owned by the founder of the FTX crypto exchange disclosed a more than 7% stake in the company. Let's get to Kate Rooney for the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, Sam Bankman-Fried, he's the CEO of crypto exchange FTX, taking a 7.6% stake in Robinhood. This is according to an SEC filing out just about 30 minutes ago. The company behind this is called Emergent Fidelity Technologies. Sam Bankman-Fried is the sole director and majority owner of that company. The new Robinhood stake is worth around $648 million. And the filing says the move, quote, represents an attractive investment and the reporting persons, Sam in this case, intend to hold the shares as an investment and do not currently have any intention of taking action toward changing or influencing the control of the issuer. Bankman Freed runs one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world, really seen as a competitor to Coinbase, but also a competitor to Robinhood in some ways, which is looking lately a lot more like a crypto exchange and beefing up that side of the business. There had been some speculation about Robinhood as a takeover target of these depressed prices, down significantly from the IPO price. Reached out to Sam and FTX. No comment on that news. Robinhood has not gotten back to us just yet, but we'll keep you posted. Melissa, back to you. But again, Kate, this is separate from FTX itself, right? It's a completely yes, separate exactly. company. exactly. So it's a okay. separate entity controlled by Sam, uh, not technically affiliated with FTX, but of course, Sam is the CEO of FTX. Right. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Uh, Tim Seymour, we were, we were just talking about some of the, what, the, what did, how did you put it, Dan? Arc garbage yeah. um, rallying today. Here's another reason. I mean, there may be value in some of this. I don't want to say garbage again. Well, there may be. In hood. <laughs> there may. Sorry. Yeah, there may be strategic value. And, and you know, he's worth, uh, you know, a cool billion, $11 billion or so. So um, this isn't, you know, this is a, a big, a big significant uh, move in a, in a beaten up stock. But it's not necessarily one that I think he's that far out on a limb. I will say the, the, the complementary nature of or at least the strategic nature of this entity, you know, certainly could be there. But I think that's where you're getting uh, opportunities in the market, where you're going to see insiders, where we've talked about this, where insiders were buying their stock, or you're going to see strategics start to nibble or look at making takeovers. And I think that is what you'll see uh, in many other sectors. But here, look, uh, down 80 percent with almost 23 million users and, and a lot of sticky uh, players, although we don't know who's left and we don't know what they're worth. Um, I think Robinhood has that value. Yeah, Karen, what do you think? I mean, you know, when I initially heard this, I thought, oh, FTX could be a buyer of Robinhood, but this is a separate entity making this purchase at 7.6%. Right. I actually first read it as Fidelity, um, which, yeah. and if you read it, it's a 13, it, it just says for investment purposes. But they did file a 13D. It used to be that when you said for investment purposes, that that was what it was for. But now in the, you know, Elon Musk world, 
maybe it isn't. Maybe they could change their mind, decide to do something uh, more aggressive. I don't know. Uh, it is interesting, though. I mean, I, I think that that probably does put a floor in Hood because you got to think there's at least one buyer out there who'd be willing to buy more. So I don't know. I think that's this is a very interesting occurrence. I, I actually think the buying and running Hood is, would be just an absolute nightmare. Yeah, or just operating it. They're expected to do, I don't know, um, $2 billion in revenue. Or, you know, they're supposed to lose, on a gap basis, $1.2 billion this year. They're supposed to lose, you know, a little more than um, a, a half a billion next year on revenue this year of $1.5 billion. I mean, this is a, you know, there's no strategic buyer for this. This would be massively dilutive. The brand is toast. If you think about it, this was a, a crypto trading platform. I think FTX has done a really nice job of creating that, right? And they're really focused on institutional also. So I, I think the history of of strategic um, acquisitions or M&A of washed out like things like this is not particularly great. Look in the post.com era and then also look in the post-global financial crisis. I mean, really, those were like forced combinations back then. And there weren't really um, a lot of companies that were establishing incumbents that were picking through all the garbage and trying to find um, M&A. So to me, I don't know. I, I also don't think how does a founder who's raised a lot of uh, cash for FTC, how does he run ahead his company? You know what I mean? Buying. So it, it, it's just there's a lot of conflicts of interest. Yeah. I don't see it. Um, coming up, we're all over the after hours move in uh, a firm. Shares are surging after reporting results. We'll bring you the details next. In the auto trade hitting a red light, Ford and GM dropping after a double dose of double downgrades. We will tell you what had analysts buckling up for some bumpy roads. Plus, crypto continuing to crumble. It's not just the coins and the crosshairs. What the drop means for companies making big Bitcoin bets. More on that ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on a firm. Shares are surging 27% after the company reported a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Kate Rooney's back with those numbers. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, solid beat here for a firm. And credit quality looking better than expected. That really was the fear factor around the buy now, pay later company. As Dan Dolev of Mizuho just put it in a note, he calls it a sigh of relief 
for analysts. Wall Street really had been worried about that delinquency number. The rates appear to be flat, at least from December to March. Also, a smaller than expected loss on EPS. It was a beat by about 30 cents. Revenue was also better than expected and strong growth in gross merchandise volume. GMV increased 73 percent to 3.9 billion, also raising GMV guidance. A firm also extending its partnership with Shopify. That's a key piece of news here. Fourth quarter revenue guidance actually looking a little bit light. The midpoint was below consensus. But again, the big thing here, credit quality looking better than expected. Don't miss uh, Max, Max Levchin, CEO of a firm. He's on Mad Money coming up tonight at 6 Eastern. And we'll get the call underway as well. Interested to hear what he's got to say about guidance and uh, the company going forward. Melissa, back yep. to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney, Karen, I got to go to you on this. What do you think of the surge? Yeah, I, well, it takes us all the way back to, I think, Monday morning, which is kind of shocking how far this thing has moved. But it's interesting to me. I think the credit quality isn't so much what happened in the quarter ending in March. I think it's going to be the, the guidance, which is what Kate was talking about. So it's really this is one where you got to hear the call. But the top line was good. So far, credit quality, that's good. But it's it's really a forward looking to me. That's where that's where the mystery is unfolds. What's going to happen next? Not the last quarter. Yeah, I would just say down so much from the highs. And I know that doesn't really make a whole heck of a lot of sense to kind of guide an investment in something like this. But if these guys can get out of a period like we're likely to go into some sort of consumer led slowdown and maybe it's not even that deep or that long or whatever, and they don't have a lot of bad debt, then they've proven them, them themselves. And it's really on investors who are willing to pay the multiples that they were willing to pay. So now you have this company that does lose a lot of money, okay, trading, you know, less than three times sales at a time when it was an actually ludicrous multiple of sales. So I like the news about Shopify and kind of strengthening yeah, that yeah. sort of uh, combination. So to me, I don't know. I mean, listen, sooner or later, people are going to take shots at some of these names. I don't mean from a strategic standpoint, from an investment standpoint, and seeing right. past this cycle and what do these business yeah. models look like. Even if they put up, you know, good guidance, Tim, I mean, this is just not the kind of market. I mean, we've had blue chip companies put up good guidance and they've got stronger balance sheets and a longer track record and, and they're getting taken to the woodshed. How, how can we know the credit exposure of a consumer finance company at this mm -hmm. point, especially one uh, coming out of the go-go days of you know people being sent checks, people be given more you know more more access in their revolvers than they've ever had? I I think consumer finance companies are toast. I think anyone that was disguised as as fintech and whatnot were way overpriced, and they should have been even during a go-go time. I think there was a misunderstanding of what people own. Also, when when they talk about on this earnings call how they they continue to have sustained profitability on an on an adjusted operating income basis, that to me is an oxymoron. That, that doesn't mean profitability. It means that they can, they can twist the numbers however they want, but they're not profitable. So, you know, I, I, this is something that I think a lot of investors are getting frustrated with, especially, again, adjusted EBITDA, uh, adjusted free cash flow, adjusted for what? Um, so I don't think we can know their credit exposure right now. All right. Uh, shares of Ford and GM falling today after two double downgrades from Wells Fargo. Analysts concerned that a shift to EVs will strain the legacy automakers and the profits could reach a peak this year. Phil Lebeau's here to break down the calls. Phil. And Melissa, what you're looking at here is a rare double downgrade from Wells Fargo. As you mentioned, they have moved them, both of these companies, GM and Ford, two notches, going from overweight to underweight, saying, look, it's peak profits here in 2022. Why? Because both of these companies will be investing billions over the next several years as they ramp up EV production. So as you take a look at Ford, or let's start first with General Motors, as you take a look at GM, they're targeting 
400,000 EVs in production by the end of 2023. In the case of Ford, today they once again said, we plan to have 600,000 EVs built by the end of 2023. During the Ford annual meeting today, CEO Jim Farley alluded to the fact that, yeah, they've got some real challenges right now and in the future when it comes to the supply chain. Although we see the chip shortage easing in the second half of the year, as we scale our battery electric vehicles, we will have new s supply challenges in both semiconductors, electronic components in general, and batteries and battery raw materials. All of this comes on a day when the smaller EV automakers all saw their stocks move higher. And it's understandable why, because they've been beaten up so dramatically. Keep in mind, the bump today that you saw from these stocks, whether it's because Rivian reaffirming its guidance or because Lordstown Motors has finalized a deal with Foxconn over the last month, these guys have just been hammered, and we're just showing you the last month. Go back to the beginning of the year, Melissa. Many of these stocks are down 80 or 90%. Bottom line is this when it comes to Ford and GM. Wells Fargo believes the costs, raw materials, and the shortages that are going to be there because a lot of these materials, where are they going to be coming from worldwide, not just for Ford and GM, but all automakers, his belief, the analyst's belief, is that these guys will be spending much more when it comes to EV production in the future. And specifically, Phil, the analyst is saying about $8,500 more for the Ford Lightning, which is the new F-150, electrified F-150. And so I'm yep. wondering, is there, is there the thought that they can't pass this cost on to the consumer? Well, clearly in the beginning you can. And whether it's Ford or GM, and we saw this with Tesla, early adopters will pay more. And we're seeing that right now across the board. Every automaker, early adopters say, I've got to have it. I want to have it, whether it's the Lightning, whether it's going to be uh, the Hummer uh, EV. People will pay that in the beginning. But at some point, Melissa, and, and I'm not sure when it is, whether it's 24, 25, 26, at some point people will say, that's a little too rich for me to pay $55,000, $60,000 for an electric pickup truck. Even though the base starts at 39000 people never are going to buy just the base. They're going to pay a little bit more. So when do the prices come down? And if we don't have the raw materials for electric battery uh, packs and battery cells, well, then you know the costs are going to be higher. So now mm -hmm. you're selling them at a loss. And that's ultimately the, th the thesis here. Yeah. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Guy Adami, what do you think? Well, I mean, you know what happened to Flick on the triple dog there? He got his uh, tongue stuck on the flagpole. I mean, that wasn't pleasant for you Christmas story fans out there. And I dig the double downgrade here. But I'll say this, you know, in terms of price levels, I think it's a little late in the game to be doing it. Ford, this time last year, was a $12.5 stock, went to 27-ish, back to 12.5. I mean, again, trying to play down valuation, which I've tried to do, has been wrong. But I do think it's late in the game to downgrade the name. I actually think you can take a shot on the long side here. Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is just this notion that supply chain issues, the raw material, cost issue, inflation issue, this analyst is saying they're going to be around for much longer than what the market is currently anticipating, Karen. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I think that if, though, this is peak auto, then might, those, might that supply chain issue or that uh, scarcity actually loosen up a little bit. But I mean, it was an interesting, thoughtful piece. I just, you know, I'm sort of in guy's camp. It seems kind of late to me. At this PE multiple, it's certainly not trading like there is the expectation that things are going to get way better. I mean, this has been trading at this sort of 
peak, very low multiple for a long time. So, but you know, I'm wrong and long, so that I, you know, I have a filter looking at, looking at it differently. I just think it's late to the game to to make this very bold call. I mean, he's taking it down 41 points. Yeah. And he thinks earnings will go down like four bucks. So that's a 10 multiple. That would be great if GM got a 10 multiple. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Pushback on China's COVID lockdowns. Backlash on social media as harsh policies continue. So are leadership changes on the horizon. What it could mean for the global economy. The details ahead. Plus, stocks in the red. So we're diving into the options pits for a pulse check on the markets. Professor Ko is bringing us the action. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Chatter intensifying on social media about China President Xi Jinping's future. There's speculation President Xi may step down amid strict COVID lockdowns and an economic slump. CNBC contributor Wardrick McNeil is following the very latest. He's senior policy analyst at Longview Global. It almost seems even unthinkable that this would be chatter on social media, Wardrick. But here we are. Um, how do you sort of grade this, this rumor? Well, I think we have to accept that the anger is real, the discontent is deep, certainly among the citizens of China, particularly in Shanghai, and even, Melissa, among some of the rank-and-file party members of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. However, I think we have to slow down because we've seen no signs that the elite members of the Chinese Communist Party are in any way looking uh, to replace uh, Xi Jinping. And I certainly don't think a step down, if that were to happen, would be happening anytime before the party Congress in the fall. But I will say, uh, Melissa, that, you know, Xi Jinping has been enshrined in the party documents as the core. And so when I hear some of these statements about stepping down, you know, what's important for the viewers to understand is there's a secondary question. And that is stepping down from what? Xi Jinping has three positions. The president of China. He is the general secretary of the Communist Party. And he is the chairman of the Central Military Commission. And it's those latter two that is the extreme power, not being the president of China. And I don't see him stepping down from either of those, certainly not general secretary and chairman of the military uh, commission. So I think she is well on his way to a third term. But there will be some pushback in terms of his policies that has caused this discontent and caused this anger. That is real. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you just along those lines. I mean, the fact that we're discussing the possibility of this really underscores um, the, the notion that, that the discontent is real and it's rampant in China. So how, how might the government then respond to that anger in terms of policy? Well, I think the first thing we're likely to see, uh, Melissa, is Li Keqiang, who's the premier, uh, step up between now and the party congress and start to moderate policy a little bit more towards the market-oriented uh, position that we saw China going towards reform and opening up prior to the Xi Jinping era. It may be too little, too late, but I think Xi Jinping has certainly gotten the message that perhaps it was too much, too far with the over-centralization of the economy. So I would look there and see what happens with the tech sector, with the real estate sector. I think we're gonna see some policy loosening around those areas here within the next several months. Hey, Duarte, it's Tim. Always fascinating to hear your thoughts on Chinese policy. How about monetary policy? How about the weakening of the yuan or the renminbi, whichever you're looking at? Um, how much pressure do they feel from this and capital flight? Uh, is that being focused on? Absolutely, it is. China's very concerned about this. However, Tim, you'll remember that they've been very, very reluctant to turn on the taps and sort of stimulate and juice the economy. They've been trying to do a good job of disciplining themselves around this. But I suspect, given where we are, all of these things are going to be on the table. And despite some of the early resistance to monetary policy, some of the fiscal things that uh, the Chinese have sort of eschewed in the past, I, I don't see any of this off the table as we move towards the party Congress, to be honest with you. All right. DeWardrick, thank you. Always great to get your analysis and perspective. DeWardrick McNeil. Um, Karen, you know, not too long ago, we were talking about companies with great Chinese exposure, and maybe that is not a selling point anymore for investors. How are you feeling about that sort of question right now? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. I don't know if you were thinking, all right, well, not only will they have a sort of less of a zero COVID policy so mm -hmm. that things open, but supply chain improves and demand improves. They're not in a lockdown. So, to the extent, you know, a Starbucks, a Nike, someone, you know, companies positioned like they, that would be a good thing if, if Xi Jinping had to loosen those restraints to be able to stay in power. Yeah. Um, Tim, your nickname has been in the past the ambassador. So I will ask you this yes. question. Do you feel like, I've got you views. know, having the, the party Congress <laughs> meet later on this year, is that some sort of backstop to the Chinese economy? I, I think it's a, a reaffirmation of power. There's no way he's stepping down. I think after that, he could actually make some moves that are more accommodative. And you could actually see some moves that might be uh, e either uh, from a sentiment perspective, more beneficial to especially their, their Internet sector. By the way, how about last week, J.P. Morgan having to retract, but in a major research report calling China uninvestable. Um, mm -hmm. And, and you know, clearly some political pressure from that. But, you know, again, look at emerging markets, 40 percent China, get China right, you get EM right. Dollar strength is something also that I think the minute you start to see the dollar weaken, EM may be worth buying again. All right. Coming up, stocks closing out mixed today. The Nasdaq even finding some greens as a tech sell off winding down. We're diving into the options pits to get a health check on the markets. Details are next. Plus, crypto's collapse continues. Bitcoin dropping to $28,000. And it's not just coins under pressure, but the carnage means for companies with big Bitcoin bets. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Q is finishing well off the lows of the day today, but the ETF that tracks the Nasdaq 100 is still down nearly 6% just this week. 
One intrepid options trader seems to be making a huge bullish bet on the beaten down sector. Mike Coe joins us now with the action. Mike. Yeah, so not surprisingly, in a lot of this, we've seen a lot of bearish flows. But today we actually saw some pretty big bullish bets as well. The one that caught my eye was the September 290-334 call spread. Somebody paid $18.70 for that spread. The buyer paying nearly $15 million bucks in premium to make a bullish bet that the Qs will be above that 290 strike price by at least 1870. And I believe it was probably the same trader who traded 8,000 of the September 290 July 323 call spreads as well, spending a like amount of premium. So $30 million in premium is a pretty big bet that the Qs could bounce. Is this you, Dan? Just joking. <laughs> it wasn't me, but you know, it's it's one way to do it, right? If you think we're in the, the sort of market where we're getting this sort of squeezy action, um, vols are really high, so you're paying for that defined risk. But I mean, listen, the QQQ has some 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 difficult technical resistance at 320 in the near term, in my opinion. All right, uh, Mike Coe, thank you, and we will see you, you tomorrow. Well, it's Friday tomorrow already. Um, options action, full show, Friday 5:30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, crypto's carnage continues, and some companies with big ties to the space are feeling the pressure. More on that next, plus tapestry jumping on the back of earnings this morning. So is this retailer still worth a try on? The details in Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The carnage in the crypto world continued today with Bitcoin hitting its lowest level since December 2020. So what does the plunge mean for companies like MicroStrategy, which are so highly levered to these assets? For more, let's bring in CoinShares Chief Strategy Officer, Melton Dumours. Melton, great to have you with us. You know, at some point in time, there was talk about more and more companies on the S&P 500 potentially putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet. And that seems like that is is done. I mean, that's just <laughs> a pipe dream at this point. Um, what, what's the ripple effect in your view of, of this? What kind of ripple effects will we see with Bitcoin being where it is now? Absolutely. Look, I think we're operating in a really new environment. Um, 50% of the S&P 500 is down over 50% since the start of the year. Investors are de-risking across the board, while the fundamentals of many businesses like Coinbase and our business CoinShares are quite sound. Um, Price-to-earnings ratios are, are very healthy. I think investors generally are very wary of risk. They're de-risking across their portfolio. They're trying to stem the bleeding. And so we're seeing a sell-off. We're seeing concerns around this downturn. I think many investors do use uh, crypto public companies as a proxy for exposure to Bitcoin, ETH, and the crypto market overall. So we generally do see high correlations between crypto-related equities and crypto markets. Um, that being said, I think many of the concerns around MicroStrategy and the Bitcoin exposure on its balance sheet um, are, are somewhat overblown. Um, they do have just a very minimal amount of leverage. I think there's been extensive coverage on the topic. But I do think, as we've always highlighted, Bitcoin and crypto assets have historically been volatile. We're seeing higher highs, also higher lows. But these assets, you know, they're, they're not cash. They're not cash equivalents. And in the current environment, I think the market is pricing a preference for free cash flow and cash on balance mm-hmm. sheet. Hey, hey Meltem, um, it's Dan. You, you and I were talking earlier in the week and you were mentioning despite some of the weakness that we've seen in some of the major coins and Bitcoin, obviously, um, and ETH in particular here, mm-hmm. you're seeing some data where you're seeing institutional inflows into other products here. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I know that's a really important pillar of the bull case here. 
Absolutely. Look, I think it's always really interesting. Um, obviously, the narrative right now, we've seen crypto market clap, cap pardon, decline significantly by about a third over the last week or so. So clearly, there's there's concern. We've seen events like this before, albeit not at this rapid pace. The volatility and the velocity, I think, in all markets is feeling like it's increased quite a bit. Um, but one of the interesting things we track is, since we're in the uh, business of asset management, we track product flows. We issue weekly fund flows report. And interestingly, last week, even though Bitcoin saw 15% price decline, there were net inflows into Bitcoin products, around $45 million of net inflows and global AUM of Bitcoin products at the end of last week still stood at $30 billion, around $50 billion across all crypto products. So again, I think investors are sitting by opportunistically. There are investors who are looking to add crypto exposure, you know, 1% to 4% allocation is historically what we've uh, we've advised with quarterly rebalancing. So I do think there are buyers who are looking to add. Now, will those positions be in massive size? Possibly not. But I do think there are buyers who are looking at this opportunity as an opportunity to accumulate and DCA or dollar cost average in to position, particularly in assets like Bitcoin, Ether and others. Maltem, good to see you. Thank you for your time. Of course. Malcolm Demures of CoinShares. Guy, you've talked to Michael Saylor, the CEO of, um, of MicroStrategy, many mm-hmm. times. And so I'm wondering what your take is on, on this exposure now that it's to the down, now that Bitcoin's on the downside. I, I don't want to speak for Michael. I'll say this knowing him. I don't think he's going to waver from his view. My sense is, you know, a week or two from now, you'll find that MicroStrategy's probably continued to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. You know, I don't think he, again, I'm not speaking for him, just in my. You know, knowing being familiar, I don't think he's focused on the ten, fifteen thousand dollar moves. He's obviously in this for not the next five minutes, for the next five years. With that said, quickly about Bitcoin, I tweeted it earlier. I don't think it's coincidence that Bitcoin topped out around the same time this Fed became responsible late in November, because I think Bitcoin was born out of the fact that central banks are running amok, and now that they're trying to get their act together, Bitcoin and crypto has been cut in half. The trigger for Bitcoin to go higher, again, my opinion. If for whatever reason this Fed blinks, be it market uh, reasons or otherwise, I think Bitcoin goes parabolically higher. Well, that's, Dan, why you bought a lot of crypto today. Right? Not a lot, but you no. bought crypto today because of the high correlation. The correlation between Bitcoin and the Nasdaq is at an all-time high. Yeah. So that's the same bet. So when I think of some of these smart contracts like ETH and, and Solana, I, I think of them as like maybe a high growth, um, high valuation NASDAQ sort of stock that, that there's like ecosystems being built around them. That's how I think about it from an allocation standpoint. And I just think they've come in so far and I haven't bought any in a very long time. I just think that, again, I think Meltem just said it, dollar cost averaging. None of us are going to know where that bottom is. So you start small and you kind of work your way into it and you have that thesis and you stick with it. Yeah. Karen, you're adding to uh, your holdings in the top drawer that you've got in, in Bitcoin? In the drawer that, no, no, definitely not. Leave it there. See what happens. <laughs> and Tim? Um, like, it, it might be more the middle drawer for me. Um, I, you know, I think you've got a case where <laughs> this is the kind of pullback that every institution who wanted to own this six, nine, and 12 months ago has been waiting for. Uh, I do think institutional adoption is, is certainly coming more than we've actually seen it leave. And I think you actually have a case where the regulators finally have a lot more to go. I I also think the biggest banks in the world, and I think the Federal Reserve and central banks globally, uh, have adopted digital currencies uh, and crypto and blockchain. Uh, That's only good for the asset class. Um, It's just a terrible time for risk. 
Yep. Coming up, one name bucking today's sell-off. Tapestry serving on the back of earnings. So should you be adding this name to your shopping list? More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Check out Tapestry topping the tape. Shares surging more than 15% after the company posted an earnings beat despite lowering its outlook. The coach parent also approving a new $1.5 billion share buyback that will start next year. And take a look at some of the other major winners in the consumer space. Etsy jumping about 13% after hitting a new 52-week low earlier in the session. Under Armour, a similar story, closing up 6% in the green after hitting a 52-week low. Best Buy, Advanced Auto Parts also locking in pretty solid gains amidst this retail rally. Um, Karen, I thought Tapestry was interesting. I mean, Coach, the brand itself, did really well in terms of sales. I think they were up 20 percent. Kate Spade also um, double-digit growth. Yeah, Kate Spade, I think, was up 19. I think it was, you know, it, it wasn't a blowout quarter, but it was just fine or a little better than fine. North America was particularly strong, so that's good. I think there was a lot of relief there. And to me, I don't own Tapestry, but I do own Capri, which overlaps in a lot of ways, a lot of North American exposure there, somewhat of a similar customer. So if they have good North American numbers, good for them. They've rallied, I don't know, 8 or 9% today, still incredibly cheap. I think they'll probably do a buyback as well. The only negative thing about Capri is they have a little more European exposure than Tapestry does. And I've got to imagine in this current environment, Europe isn't as strong But I think it bodes well for Capri and some other retailers that have just been left for dead. And remember, a lot of them have really good balance sheets. So, you know, that's something that I take comfort in. Yeah, I mean, we're just in retail reporting season, Guy. It's a it's a wide variety of names that we cited as participating in this rally today. I like Dollar Gen. I'll say one thing about Tapestry. It was a beautiful move today, but I think it's too late uh, to buy the shares now. And I don't think the market's going to love these shares uh, tomorrow, Mel. I know Tim knows what I'm talking about. I guarantee you don't. Is this some sort of like coded language or something? Like, what are you guys talking about? I won't tell. Oh, come on. (laughs) I have like 10 seconds. I told you, Mel. Because... Yes, it's 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 his favorite artist in the world, let alone female artists. He loves Carol King. So, oh, okay. All right, we're, we're out of time now. Up next, final <laughs> trade. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Guy Adami. I'm so upset you don't know Carol King. It really but it shouldn't why surprise a, me. Why is Devin surprising? Energy, Mel DVN. Of course, That's I don't know nice. that. Tim. I'm so upset we talked about Carol King, uh, but in tribute to Karen's dog, I'm doing Petco, ticker woof, growing consumables, certainly pet sales, inflation. Yeah, it actually helps them. Petco. He was in the background in the A block. Karen. Yeah, so first kudos to Dan for being just very bearish on Q's, triple Q's all year, have at it, whatever else you say about it. I actually agree with you today. Long triple Q's would be my final trade. And Guy, I'll still love you tomorrow. <laughs> Dan, I, know that, I know what that is reference to. I know that reference. Dan. Yeah, GOVT, government <laughs> bonds. I like them here. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently 
at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.